Madden Luke's Sci-Fi Sanctuary. The year is 3013. The galaxy is scintillating in the mellow light. Two galactic pilgrims seek out vistas in the samurai future to bring forth the unity of the cosmic shaman. Opening the door of the pantheon of mystics, the evil sorcerer wizard powers the engine of science, seeking to forever alter the sacred balance, traveling on effervescent balls of summer fire. This week, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. In the year 1961, everything's better down where it's wetter under the sea. Yeah, sure. There's no mermaids in this one, though. What's what's a good... uh underwater movie without mermaids i mean what, what are these t- you know the abyss i guess well, avatar kind of had mermaids i mean this is close enough right this is like the first underwater film we've doing where i don't have to constantly compare it to the abyss and avatar because it's <laughs> 30 years earlier <laughs> i think about red skies but um yeah this is matt here this is luke it's a sci-fi sanctuary coming returning to the sanctuary from the mission log podcast is john champion howdy Hey, how's it going? Uh, and wait, wh- why are we not saying 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea? I mean, a mere six years before this movie came out, the biggest, mightiest Disney picture of all with some astounding underwater photography. See, I think of that one as a ride, though, because I've been on the uh, various rides way more than I saw Yeah, it's movie. a ride, but there was a guy named Jules Verne who wrote a <laughs> yeah, book yeah. 140 years ago, made into a movie in 1916, made into a movie in 1954, made into two TV miniseries. I mean, it does have a light. It's like, did Paul McCartney uh, uh, play in a band before Wings? Yes, yes, he did. <laughs> yeah. I think the reason I I was expecting this film to be more Twenty Thousand Leagues than it was, hmm. but when See, I got there, that wasn't so much what I. I it, it's interesting because I I was surprised at the parallels to Twenty Thousand Leagues. Uh, I I thought it was going to be more different from Okay, oh, interesting. Leagues. Yeah, yeah. Now, admittedly, I, I haven't would. read or watched any version of Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea in like twenty years, so. Oh, well, there you go. Well, a lot has a changed. Lot. <laughs> a lot has changed since then. Yeah. Actually, I have read the book more than I've watched the movie, too. <laughs> I maybe <laughs> haven't watched and... the movie, but I've definitely read the book. Oh, well, that's one that we're going to do at some point. Um, yep. No, The Rise, because there was a classic Disney World one, which has been mm. gone for 25 plus yeah. years now. Um, yeah. Tokyo has one, which is cool because it doesn't have any actual water. It's just like glub gloves in your window, and then you're just in a normal dark ride, but it's a. Uh, it feels like you're underwater, so it's a pretty cool effect and way cheaper for them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Didn't yeah, one of them I, uh, get replaced with Finding Nemo, you said? No, no, you no. Kept, um, Epcot. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and at Disneyland in the 1950s, they had the nuclear submarine ride, and those were mm. based on contemporary, like the, Nautil- the, the original nuclear submarine, the Nautilus. Then they redressed that with Nemo. Uh, okay. probably uh, however many years ago. So now the subs are bright yellow. They look like um, scientific craft rather than military. 
But in Florida, that 20,000 leagues ride was purpose built as 20,000 leagues. It was such a favorite of mine that I bribed a cast member to get his uh, hat before they closed. (laughs) So I I still have that proudly today because it was so, it it really occupied a special place in my heart. For this movie, I first encountered it uh, somewhere around the year 2000. This would have been right around the time on DVD when like, you know, things that you just wouldn't necessarily pop up in the video store started to show up. Like uh, this was on a double feature with uh, incredible, excuse me, Fantastic Journey, which is uh, another one we have to get to here because that's a cool one. I I think that disc is actually somewhat valuable now, but uh, yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. That side, I just did get watched a little bit more than this side of the disc, but that's because I just keyed into that movie when I was like a small child or I didn't see this one until I was like, you know, early twenties. So fair enough. Yep. Um, Luke, is this your first viewing of this? I hadn't heard of this film until you messaged me and said, we're doing voice from the bottom of the sea on this date next week. I was like, okay. <laughs> wow. But had you heard of the TV show? No, I actually got confused when I tried to find this film and there was a bunch of TV episodes. Oh, okay. Interesting. <laughs> All right. All right. Because uh, to me, and I, I think uh, a lot of people who kind of run in similar fandoms uh, that I do, they know the TV show first. Mm-hmm. And then the movie is kind of this oddity because tonally they're so different. Um, obviously, they share a lot of DNA. Basically, Erwin Allen is like, hey, we spent all this money. Let's also milk it a little further and get a, right. get a TV show out of it. Uh, and the TV show was Erwin Allen's longest running series. So it did really well. And it's interesting here, uh, there are a lot of memos that Gene Roddenberry kept during the making of uh, the original series where they are comparing Star Trek to Voyage of the Bottom of the Sea. Okay, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why, why does this episode cost more than what they're doing on Voyage? And, you know, <laughs> and, and then even in the 80s when they're prepping Next Gen, they're still referring to Voyage of the Bottom of the Sea. So that, that was always like... Uh, parallel in Gene's eyes and Bob Justman's eyes about like, oh, okay, it, we're doing a big-ish budget, not the biggest, but big-ish budget, high concept science fiction that requires a lot of original set pieces, the original mm-hmm. costumes, uh, all that stuff has to be built. So here's, here's how you do it. Yeah. That's interesting because the film it reminded me of most is another film that we saw as like a pre-Star Trek, which is Forbidden Planet. Yep. Yep. Oh, I'm hard not to make that parallel with uh, Walter Pigeon there, too. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, that makes us right, Geek, now that we're doing our second Walter Pigeon film, right? <laughs> <laughs> Can't complain with that. But yeah, I guess oh. for me, you know, I didn't, they didn't show the show, I guess, on Atlanta UHF when I was a kid. And um I just happened to run into this DVD. So yeah, for me, I've always set up a movie first. And uh, interesting. one of the reasons I called you is I, I think I remember not too long ago, you kind of demarcating this in the series as the beginning of 1960s science fiction being another difference from 20,000 Leagues Under Sea or Forbidden Planet that there's a, you know, kind of tonal shift here. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, for for sure. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, Forbidden Planet is such an outlier because it is so sophisticated and so high budget for a time that science fiction just was not. Mm. I mean, you you can look at other, uh, you know, space travel movies from the same year or the year before, and it's just night and day, you know, completely different. 
But here, when we get into the 60s, and surprisingly, you know, I had to keep reminding myself this is 1961 and not a little later, uh, because there are some pretty slick production techniques here. And just topically, like, I, there's a lot of relevant, still to this date, a lot of relevant kind of commentary and, and uh, ideas going on. Now, I, I'm kind of jumping to the last part here to say, I don't think it's a perfect film. I don't think it's a great film, but I think it's very good at what it sets out to do. And I was honestly very surprised at uh, in revisiting it how kind of how in depth they did go with some of the more thoughtful aspects of the movie. So good on them for that. Yeah, I was definitely surprised because I at the start of the film I was like, oh, okay, here we go. It's going to be a romp. And then what they were going <laughs> yeah. for was more of like here's a tense film about guys on a submarine dealing with a decision. Mm -hmm. And obviously they, you know, they meet a giant squid and a giant octopus and they have a bit of adventure, but right. it was trying okay. to do something a bit different. Did the opening music though, is that what set you up thinking this Definitely was Definitely that yes. opening music <laughs> yeah. was the theme tune to a different film. <laughs> and thank goodness they dropped that when they moved to series because it just made no sense whatsoever. That opening music is, uh, it is a strange choice. Thank goodness it doesn't come back again um, because it, it just it doesn't make sense yeah, like it doesn't fit in my head it's just the meme of like me at the start it's a wonderful journey to the bottom of the sea me by the end if god wills our death it will happen <laughs> See? exactly yeah, my, my note for that little bit is it sounds like we're heading into the sea with dean martin of course that being frankie avalon not dean martin but i hadn't yeah. seen his credit pop up yet so <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. Also, I like the idea of following Dean Martin to the sea because because you're you're soused with the martini in hand. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, of course, that's how I'd want to go. Yeah. Uh, let me go ahead and do a quick tale of this movie to refresh folks. Submarine Seaview, with its designer, Admiral Harriman Nelson, on board, is completing its trial run. They've been under Arctic ice outside of radio contact for 96 hours. Things go wonky when the ice begins to drop on them. After surfacing and regaining contact with the world at large, the crew learns that the Van Allen radiation belts have gone fully psychedelic and the sky is burning. Nelson, along with his scientist buddy, Lucian Emery, head for the UN to propose that their submarine nuke the belts from the correct time and place. Their plan is rejected, but they make it back to the sub and start to implement it anyways. It helps that both civilization and the planet are falling apart. With pursuing fleets, giant squid, minefields, mutiny, and saboteurs all get in the way of completing the mission. They probably should not have picked up that Messiah complex dude on the ice, all things considered. But the missile is ultimately fired, makes the sky blue again, and Earth is saved.
almost put a line at the end there that like uh, I didn't mention Frankie Avalon, Barbara Eden, or uh, Joan Fontaine, but it's not really part of the plot. I guess they're just they don't have to be. Key. Well, the Sabbath, <laughs> Barbara Eden has to be here for sure, but uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The the plot is kind of simple, but it's more about the drama along the way, right? Yeah, yeah. I had a few times I was I made in my notes. I was like, I feel like I'm kind of watching like Crimson Tide light a little bit. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> like they're not quite, you know, Gene Hackman uh, screaming into people's faces, which water. I don't think Water Pigeon is capable of that. I, well, maybe he is. I don't know. He's not in this movie. I, I slap but a you guy. know what? There, yeah, he does slap a guy, and the, there's a lot more. Uh, uh, say discord between the crew members in this than I remember because again I I'm coming at it from what I remember from the TV show and the mm. movie is like this little footnote to that and at the TV show they they mostly all like get along very well and it's like Star Trek where they're all very heroic and they all work together um, battling the monster of the week you know but in this there's way more uh, interpersonal drama <laughs> among the crew and they really let I, I think they very wisely sort of let you keep guessing uh, how far off his rocker uh, Admiral Nelson is and uh, do the other people around him, like uh, Captain Crane, do they have the right to strip him of his power and do their own thing anyway? Like, how far do you let a superior officer go if you think that what they're proposing is insane? Do either of you know, like, is this a case of like Planet of the Apes where they made a film and later chose to make a TV show? Or was it kind of intended as kind of no. a pilot? I, it was not intended. No, um, they they made the movie. Uh, Irwin Allen had the foresight to keep a bunch of the sets and props. The movie was a hit. So then ABC, where Irwin Allen had a contract, came along and said, "Okay, let's let's do this now." So um, yeah, the reason I ask is because the film is called Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, mm -hmm. and it's set aboard this super sub, but mm -hmm. that's really not what it's about. Hmm. Like it's about this like end of the world disaster and the submarine is just a nuclear yeah. submarine. Like it doesn't yeah. really do anything that other subs can't do. Uh, so except dive into the Marianas Trench. Right. Again, which is, <laughs> which is they just use like once as a deus ex machina to escape another sub, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, the, the TV show is much more science fiction. You know, they have a flying sub rather than a mini sub. And it really is that, you know, there are aliens and all kinds of things, all right. kinds of discoveries and adventures that happen under the sea as well, this, opposed to... This one yeah, is a science fiction plot. It's just not a plot that's about anything under the sea. Sure, <laughs> right. Yeah, it's about the Van Allen belt. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is uh, Aaron Allen uh, getting the first notch in his belt for being the king of the disaster movies. At least until, yeah. you know, Emmerich comes along. So... <laughs> yeah. Good. You know, he's going to make what Towering Inferno and Poseidon Adventure later. So this, this is this yeah. is his jam, basically. Right. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. Luke, as an Englishman, how, how do you feel that they named him Admiral Nelson? Uh, I, that was a bit <laughs> odd. <laughs> <laughs> I found it more weird that they named the other Admiral BJ. Like, surely by 1961, they knew what that meant. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't, that the, isn't that BJ on MASH? Uh, yeah, BJ Honeycutt. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. But you know, Wolfenstein is BJ Blazkowicz, but they definitely knew what they were doing because 
that's Wolfenstein. <laughs> well, and um, I, I noticed in Japan they recently changed it because now when you see the basketball news, it's J League. But uh, three years ago, you turn on the news and it would always be like BJ League. So, <laughs> I think someone someone was like, uh, you know, I don't want to change that. <laughs> Callets. Uh, <laughs> truly truly but yeah there's i mean luke and i often come over things in japan where we're just like is that okay? is that the right turn of phrase what we were just talking about matt <laughs> yeah really <laughs> i mean well i was just showing you the snack box which i almost took a picture of yesterday when my student came in which is uh the snack box we have and it's got roadie the little horse right like mm -hmm. plastic horse and it's like my first with roadie i'm like that doesn't feel right <laughs> <laughs> Um, just, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the performances. So, cause we do have notable actors in here. Um, and Luke, it's a guy that's not necessarily the old school film snob. Did you recognize anybody? I, I recognize, but not like, oh, it's that guy from this to, I just, oh, I've seen that face. I've seen that face. Hmm. But yeah, I, I'm not like people I'm intimately familiar with. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course you'd seen Water Pigeon. And, uh, yeah. 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 I guess I've, well, I'm sure I've seen him in something else uh, other than Forbidden Planet. <laughs> and I have to do a little dive on that. Yeah, that's always the name that I've pops heard. to mind for me. Yeah. I'm sitting here wondering how Frankie Avalon ended up in here. I guess that was just the boost tickets because his character could easily be not <laughs> here. Anybody. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they got Very him. He true. had to be here to sing the title song, I guess. So, yeah. 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 <laughs> Uh, see, I, I'm having a quick look at Water Pigeon. So yeah, I have also as well. He's done a lot, but mm -hmm. not much that I've watched. Oh, he's in a silent movie called The Gorilla. That sounds great. Okay, <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, it'd be, it'd be Skyjacked. Cool. Oh yeah, yeah. The, the screaming factor. woman. <laughs> 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 yeah, I guess this and and uh, Forbidden Planet are, are the big hits for me. Well, and it, it looks so. like he had like a, a guest episode on like every TV show. That was running during his lifetime. Oh yeah, oh, wait. yeah for sure. I, hang on, I, I'm just now seeing. I, I guess his final film role is Sextet uh, with Mae West, the the infamous one of the worst movies ever made, 1977. Uh, she wrote, as, she didn't direct it, but yeah, she she co-wrote it. Uh, it was based on her play. It stars a young Timothy Dalton alongside Dom DeLuise, Tony Curtis. George Hamilton, Alice Cooper, Ringo Starr. Um, <laughs> and it, it is truly awful. Uh, like, hard to get through even in a so bad it's good or I can watch this ironically kind of way. Okay. So, uh, the, the late, great Walter Pigeon, that was his swan song. I'm very... How many great actors go out on a terrible film? Yeah, I know. Just right. you got you got to end on a terrible film. Um, yeah, I, I think yeah. Orson Welles is well, the hardest. Yeah, uh, no, he went out on a masterpiece. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I just like they didn't. He never seemed to understand the role he was even doing. I play for a toy that, that eats other toys or something. <laughs> 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 That's cool. I can go with that. Um, this movie does kind of. 1961 shoehorn the female characters in for the most part. I mean, we got the doctor. Uh, so, well, she's, of course she's horrible, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> I think it does. It doesn't do it as bad as some. Like it's better than Forbidden Planet, where there's literally just one woman and she's like what the men are battling over. By everyone, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it, at least with the big reveal here, you've got somebody with some agency. 
you know, mm-hmm. misguided as it may be. Yeah. Well, and yeah, the two women are both like they are firmly on the two sides of the conflict, and they are <clears throat> fighting yeah. their case. I mean, admittedly, um, the secretary, anytime she tries to speak up, someone just sends her to her quarters. yeah very true but there was a brief moment where he said something like oh there's another woman on board and then the next scene is us meeting the shark called bessie and i thought that's what they were talking about Ah. (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's only shortly thereafter that you get to that really gratuitous shot in the mess hall with the shaking butt and uh those kids with their boisterous trumpet music (laughs) uh just just uh in a submarine yeah yeah you well the submarine, the the submarine has trumpets a, yeah has a bit of the star trek problem of like you wouldn't really build it with this much space no it's huge <laughs> yeah yeah I they're, they're kind of the... cool like like that oh, is yeah. that is one of those future things you go like in the future we can afford to build build big rooms <laughs> on yep. ships you know yeah. a few weeks ago i watched a youtube clip about um it was like cooking lunch on a nuclear submarine, like oh, yeah. showing how they have to organize the galley and things, which is just insane. <laughs> I, I think you and I have very similar uh, YouTube algorithms pumping stuff into our brains because, yes, I've watched mm. about three of those in the, yeah, last, yeah. <laughs> in the last few weeks. Yeah, but th- that's the, that's the thing of the YouTube. Like, it doesn't you'd never think about it till someone says, "Hey, do you want to learn about this?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Right. Luke, what's been your rabbit hole? Because I feel like you watch classier, longer docs. Um, Towards the end of last year, I was watching like four-hour documentaries about the Aztecs. Recently, my YouTube's been a little bit more gaming-based. All the ways you can break various games and do weird things. I'll I'll literally pull up my history right now, but... He's literally pulling up all It's all stuff like that. (laughs) It's all just... Here's five ways you can do blank in a game here's how you can get up to the flying bit in zelda what is the history of princess daisy in the mario games <laughs> <laughs> okay well, I mean, that's that's again you don't really think about our history until well, you probably do but uh yeah until youtube asks if you want to learn about that or not so there's a shed load of dr dre and 50 cent because i was at the gym <laughs> yeah, yeah these things happen <laughs> They've been told 50 Cent is the perfect boxing music. Uh, well, yeah, for Matty, I presume? Yeah, of course. Right. have a monster minute um i I do want to think about our giant squid and such sure how how, how does this rate for a monster for y'all 
Um, uh, oh, go ahead, please, please. I was gonna say it's yeah. it's about what you'd expect. You'd be disappointed in an undersea movie if you didn't get a giant squid and a giant octopus. Um, they did the same trick Godzilla versus Kong did of just using a real octopus and letting it attack their model. <laughs> <laughs> At least with some of the shots. Yeah, the octopus is supposed to be smart, right? And from yeah. space or something. Well, <laughs> they probably didn't quite do what Godzilla versus Kong did, where the director ate one of them oh, after God. they oh, were right. done wow. shooting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. You know, no, no waste, no want, right? <laughs> yeah. Although the I, I more I like... learn about octopuses, the less comfortable I am eating them. Uh, yeah, of course, of course. I, I, th those scenes are a little bit gratuitous in that, you know, again, me being the big fan of 20,000 Leagues and one of the centerpieces of that movie is the giant squid fight. Mm. Like they literally, they, they shot that once and it was in the studio tank with a, you know, beautiful kind of sunset and the footage looked horrible. So they ditched it, reshot the whole thing, and manufactured the storm at sea. And it's very mm. dramatic. It's very like they got everything right. They nailed it in that scene, and that became such a, a critical, iconic part of that movie. So then watching this, it's like, all right, of course they have to encounter a giant squid. Of course they have to, and they take it one better, and they have to kill a shark right before. <laughs> They they get to the squid, so you have to have a little more uh, a little more color in the scene, a little more action, you know, heighten that tension, heighten the drama a bit. Um, and then I, I was also very entertained with the octopus because not only was it a cool shot of a real octopus, um, but it made noises. Mm. So I, I had to go back and rewind that bit because it's kind of going <laughs> like <laughs> like making yummy sounds as chewing on the sea view. So uh, yeah. Yeah, they, they had to do two better than uh, than Walt Disney did. I think Very what good. it did well, though, is that both times we have a monster <clears throat> attack, mm -hmm. it's actually used to further character stuff. Yeah. So the oh, squid sure. yeah. is like for the relationship between Lee and Alvarez. Yeah. And then when the octopus comes, it's like right at this moment where he can't decide if he trusts the Admiral or not. And then the Admiral like helps him like deal with the situation. Yeah. So right. they're uh, in a certain way, they feel like they're thrown in there, like you know, oh, it's been five minutes since something exciting happened. Throwing a monster, yeah. But it still, it still serves the film quite yep. well, I think. Yeah, well I, said. I guess I did the, or both of us did the accidental double feature thing. So we we just you know watched the Meg. So I still have yeah. images of Jason Statham, you know, kicking a shark with his bare feet. <laughs> <laughs> We don't get that in this movie, although that would be cool. Water pigeon, you know, like going on kung fu on the on the shark. That'd be cool. <laughs> Showing his chops a little bit. Uh, of course, the thing for me, uh, I, I love the red skies. Um, I, mm. I always like wacky technicolor blasts into my eyeballs. So uh, I think that was one of the hooks of this movie for me uh, first coming in. Just all the weird skies and um, matte shots and stuff. Oh, they're stunning. My, my favorite shot is the one of the sea view coming into New York Harbor. It's like the perfect composite of the skyline, the model work, and then that red sky. It is, I, I mean, amazing. I, I, I forgot, I can't remember who did the effects, if it was L.B. Abbott or um, uh, whoever, because Erwin Allen tended to work with a lot of the same people over and over, but that shot alone worth the price of admission. 
I also like that usually in films like this, you know, people come out of the water with dry hair, but in here they make it a point that it's so hot up on deck that you have to think about a, a, a furiously sweater Peter Laurie now. So yeah. <laughs> they're, <laughs> they they're very sweaty. Yeah. And, and you notice that uh, uh, somebody pointed out on IMDb that uh, there's that shot after the uh, after they are struck by the mines. You got a water leak in the forward cabin. And uh, I think it's Captain Crane. His shirt is drenched. You can see the pack of Winston cigarettes in his uh, shirt pocket just very clearly. So, yeah, there's a lot of uh, sort of perfectly imperfect moments like that where, yeah. yeah, they're sweaty, they're wet, they're gross. Yeah. Well, for me, the Red Sky stuff was especially impressive because knowing nothing about this film, I had no idea it was going to go in this direction. I, I just went in expecting under the sea hijinks and then we had all that. Yeah. And yeah, it was, it was very like visually arresting and dramatic. It's cool stuff. Oh, yeah. the one shot I don't think worked is that, oh, here's a, here's our satellite picture of the earth and they've misunderstood it as literally like a ring around the planet. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's only right. a belt if you view it in cross section. It's not. Like, yes. <laughs> the earth is not wearing a hula hoop of radiation. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, it's a fantastic shot. I mean, maybe like, scientifically wrong, but. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't yeah. even match the rest of the film because the whole sky is red. Right, not like right. a beam of it. Like so, yeah, head, you're but... not looking up and seeing a strip of it. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's yeah. like how you don't see the stars at night. The red sky is diffusing the light from the right from sure, the sure. meteor mm. hit that <laughs> Alan <it>. felt. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Uh speaking of science, make sure you stay away from that uh heavier than water ice that is uh yeah. falling <laughs> through the ocean and slamming into the ship. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so but it's pretty with <laughs> maybe something maybe the mountain fell on top of it i don't know well, they did sick. they did say that um a meteor strike caused the fire so maybe one of the meteors hit the ice and pushed it down uh, all of those chunks of ice constantly <laughs> pushing <laughs> themselves downward in the ocean yeah sure sure we'll <laughs> Lots of that. Meteors. yes yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so our disaster here i guess is the um kind of a, like a weird crazy it's it's the reverse day after tomorrow i suppose mm. <laughs> mm -hmm. um of course being the guy with the twilight zone pod i'm also thinking of the midnight sun where the earth is spiraling spiraling towards the sun and everyone's very sweaty i guess the early 60s was when they decided hey you know what we haven't shown enough of in film yet sweaty people so. <laughs> <laughs> well the but, codes just changed so they were allowed to show sweaty people <laughs> <laughs> something like that but um yeah i was kind of thinking a little bit about the old south park episode where um it shows like climate change is like a monster chasing people into buildings and stuff mm. so because <laughs> this is like the very much like oh in three days everything is, is shafted sort of version of it what's when did people start properly talking about like climate change and global warming let's see the 70s was actually global cooling if i remember correctly the 80s okay. they were like um uh going nuts about the ozone uh mm. which i don't I, they, I guess they said to kind of fix itself or didn't it, or it, i don't know they, should, we've done what we need to but it's just going to take a, a bit longer to actually yeah fix. Okay. yeah so you yeah. still need sunscreen if you're going to the beach in melbourne but you probably did anyway yeah <laughs> yes yeah people need sunscreen no matter what yeah uh yeah but no i mean the the idea of 
shifting temperatures uh it definitely predates this and and that was one of those things like th this is clearly a thing that is due to this outside natural mm. forest the radiation belt yeah but at the same time it's like okay that this very easily works as a metaphor for some kind of man-made climate change because the, the thing that i find so fascinating about this movie is just all the arguing about science <laughs> I, I mean <laughs> and, and it is so kind of dumbed down but that makes it so perfect because it, you know you just get people in a room say well no my science is better than your science well no i've got numbers well i don't like your numbers and it's like this is kind of how those arguments have trickled down to uh the people with the least expertise arguing <laughs> about whatever climate change COVID. i mean you pick it and that, that's that that's how it sounds well, one thing that they do, which does ring very true, and they could have leaned into more, mm -hmm. is the the argument, like the opposite argument from Nelson's, was the like, well, I think we should just wait and see. Yeah, yeah, and right. Like, and then, right. yeah, the maverick opinion is like, well, let's try actually doing something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, that that, that was perfect. It, yeah. it rings so true. Yes, it does. There's the um, I, I just recently because they're ninety nine cents on on Kindle. Uh, read the the concluding novels for the uh, Star Trek novel verse, which kind of has a, a weird plot of where um, basically real all of the realities are being destroyed, and they have to like, you know, Captain McCard realizes to to save other realities, they'll have to destroy this one. Mm. So it has him going and like telling similar like going to UN, going to Starfleet, then saying giving him a pretty hard no, going off and doing it anyway. So uh, you know. I just thought there was an interesting echo of, of that plot. I mean, I guess that's that's pretty yeah. much an archetype. You know, you know what you need to do. The authorities say no, you do it yeah. anyway. Um. <laughs> when the yeah. whole world tells you you're wrong and you know you're right, it's your duty to plant yourself like a tree and not budge. Captain America. <laughs> <laughs> God bless America. Yeah, as I was saying, though, I mean, this is probably the, the what what you were saying was probably the... Um, tenor of some of the arguments on the the real un floor these days yeah <laughs> yeah i sure. mean my science and your science and well, my numbers are better is probably about as deep as it gets because uh, i've got i've got the most tremendous numbers i've got the best numbers <laughs> num people tell me my numbers are the most accurate numbers <laughs> that's yep yeah dead on dead on man <laughs> yeah. yeah but um yeah Sorry, my thought, my thought fizzled. But the, the one okay. thing that you could say is like, we're talking about how this has a kind of a good message, even if mm -hmm. it's slightly accidental about like global warming and dealing with situations. It also does kind of come across very pro-nuclear submarines. Well, I, you see, that's kind of the weird thing about that. Like there's so much to take in when it mm. comes to formulating any kind of moral meaning message about this. Like th this movie, coming out when it did early 60s i put this in the context of yeah you know you, you're coming out of this uh you're in the post-war economic boom technology is our hero technology is our champion that is what will get us to the future there is a lot of optimism about things like space travel mm -hmm. and nuclear power you know and it's taking us time to realize like okay for every advancement 
that also has repercussions, you know? Yeah. And then very often those repercussions need a scientific answer to help mitigate whatever the, the shortcomings or the, the after effects were that, uh, that we didn't think of. So you have the, the threat and fear of, you know, using nuclear weapons, but here we're going to use a nuclear weapon for a good reason. Um, nobody asks, oh, well, is it going to, you know, drop, uh, you know, fallout <laughs> on half the world as this thing settles. Of course, they keep saying, oh, no, no, a blow out into space. Like, okay, sure. If we do sure. it from four o'clock from the Marianas, it's going to go away. Only there. Only <laughs> there. Weirdly yeah, yeah. specific. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm having a look to see when people first were um, against nuclear power. Because, yeah, this is still like big, bright, beautiful tomorrow sort of times you know mm -hmm. like i mean three mile island is where we really started uh getting a little skittish right and mm -hmm. then chernobyl is like yeah this probably isn't a great idea but hey it's 2023 well, and japan's yeah. trying to decide it's a good idea again well, yeah that's the thing <laughs> like yeah. nuclear power has only ever been a problem because of human error like in terms of energy nuclear power is actually still pretty good yeah it's outstanding yeah um and in terms of like uh deaths per kilowatt hour apparently nuclear is one of the very safest options that we can have mm -hmm. now but what we're talking about here in in the movie though is literally a nuclear weapon yes and and, and, and we we pretty much knew by the late 40s yeah. <laughs> that <laughs> nuclear weapons were not a good idea but at the same time uh this being an american movie and this having an american director and an american cast you know it's like oh okay well as long as it's in the hands of a you know, an American vessel and uh, at the discretion of the UN. I'm like, okay, well, that'll be fine. That, that's Although, fine if they're out there with the UN says weapons. no, and he's like, well, no, I can ask the president. And yeah, then yeah, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going like, to do it well, anyway. <laughs> and I'm only going to answer to the president. Oh, the president's not available because we can't get the phone call through. Ah, well, I should probably just do it anyway. Oh, the president's <laughs> ordered every other sub on Earth to hunt me down. Nah, I'm still going to do it. I still <laughs> should do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think, but cool. the nuclear submarine issue rings especially true in the UK because that is our main, that's the main nuclear weapon I think the UK has. And every mm. 10 years or whatever, when it's up for like renewal, it's the big debate. Yeah. Um, and like, as someone who's very, very anti-nuclear weapons, I'm always like, how about we spend this money on schools and hospitals instead of nukes that we never want to use? Imagine, like... <laughs> just imagine that, yeah. And yeah. yeah, like the one British politician in my whole lifetime I've ever liked, he was actually arrested for protesting trident when he was younger oh wow. um, but obviously none of the papers liked him he, he's basically our bernie sanders it was a uh, jeremy corbyn cool very cool yeah yeah I, I, the other kind of interesting thing about this movie is it it feeds into this very um I don't, it, it, this strange idea that we like in our pop culture where you need the one maverick hero mm. to do the one right thing to save the world and in this case it, it, it's literally like uh, from any other outside perspective admiral nelson is not the right person to be leading this at all because he, he is acting erratically he's had strong um he, he's got to tamp down a couple of mutinies uh, potentially on board like it, none of this is right but he's determined to do it anyway he's just gonna mm. go ahead and and thank goodness he's right because you can right. make this movie a very different way where everything else happens the same way, but he's wrong. 
Mm. And, you know, he lights the world on fire by, you know, shooting a nuclear weapon. Um, But yeah, this plays into this fantasy about the one hero who, against everybody else, everybody else's opinion is wrong. Uh, He's the one guy who can save the world by doing this one thing. In real life, that is very rarely ever (laughs) the, uh, the, the, the correct course of action. Well, even in the cases where that is kind of true, the way it works out is that they slowly convince others. It's not like they just go and do the thing. It's like, if you look at something like vaccination, yeah, that's the first when vaccination was first um, posited, people were very against it. But Mm. it's not like one dude snuck around and stabbed everyone on Earth. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) he slowly convinced the medical community he was right. Right, right, right. Yeah. So a different version of this film could have been him like traveling from like city to city, convincing other scientists and getting them on board or whatever. But yeah. I guess that's that's not as much of a rip-roaring adventure. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> but I guess that's why I kept thinking of like Crimson Tide like, because Crimson Tide kind of does the other side of the coin where Gene Hackman's character is convinced he's right and mm. is extreme. You know, he's basically as driven as Water Pigeon in this, but um, turns out he's quite wrong and, and he shouts better. Well, see, and and this is our parallel, one of our many parallels to 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which is Captain Nemo is Mm. completely self-determined and he's certainly not going to cooperate or listen to any sort of outside opinion. And his mission is to destroy vessels of war no matter what. He, He will just see them coming and he will take them out. And it doesn't matter what the protest is from anybody like the the people that he captures you know ned land and professor aranax and our other twenty thousand leagues parallel peter laurie as uh conseil in uh twenty thousand leagues and and here i forget his name in in this movie um but nelson has this sort of nemo parallel uh in that he's he's uh, almost the madman who is just determined to do his own mission regardless um but again, at least he's right. <laughs> at least he's on the right side, and he's theoretically not taking out any innocent lives. What would have been yeah. really interesting would be if we just cut the film when the missile launches. <laughs> <laughs> uh, roll credits, roll that song again. No, yeah. roll a card that says, uh, what do you think would happen? Please discuss in class. <laughs> Pause the film now and discuss. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'd want. But was, yeah, this this kind of run is also the first 45 minutes of Star Trek, the motion picture where uh, Kirk is kind of bullheading himself onto a ship where he probably shouldn't be. Of course, mm. again, he's proven to be right in the end. But um, yeah, of course, you know, he is pretty much an absolute prick until Spock shows up. So <laughs> <laughs> yep. I think that's the most unflattering we get. We get him in, in any of the media. <laughs> Oh yeah, that was before he had the power to say, no, I need to be the
how does this rate in the world of uh, submarine movies for you? I, I keep mentioning Crimson Tide. I guess that's one of my favorites. Uh, the other ones that really do it for me is, um, I remember watching Operation Petticoat a lot when I was a kid. That, that's not a <laughs> nuclear sub, is it? Yeah, yeah. No. Um, <laughs> is it you who took accidentally took a date to the Widowmaker? Yes. <laughs> I was I, I was I was I was um, working at a, a summer science school thing, and there's a Russian girl there, and I, I took her to a movie. I'm like, oh well, there's a lot of Russian in this movie, but uh, K19, The Widowmaker, not a good date movie. <laughs> ah. <laughs> so everyone slowly dies of radiation poisoning. <laughs> oh man! Yeah, uh, that's... The other one, this this happened. I think this might have been before you were at our office, Luke. But um, when I still made these speeches that people make at our office. Yeah. Um, I, I was talking about my birthday or something and um, oh I, I said uh, on my 16th or 17th birthday you know I said I, I took four girls to see Down Periscope and um, one of our co-workers thought I was making a lewd joke in front of the entire <laughs> company but I was like no I actually took four of my classmates that were female to go see the movie Down the Periscope movie, starring Down Periscope. Kelsey Grammer so, <laughs> but he thought I was making being completely inappropriate uh, in front of the entire company. Like, no, not, not quite that nuts. Quite. <laughs> well, I had the opposite where I did make a crude joke in front of the whole company. And then our colleague was like, no, he wouldn't have done it deliberately. I was like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes, did. he did. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, I, I think, you know, uh, one of my all time favorite submarine movies is uh, The Hunt for Red October. Mm. That, that's just. I, you know, uh, a late 80s masterpiece as far as that uh, that kind of thing goes. So I, this is not ranked nearly <laughs> as well as that. Um, but it, it, it's, you know, this is Irwin Allen doing what he does. It's like the budget version of all these other things. So mm. uh, 20,000 Leagues is Disney's just monster hit of the mid 50s cool, I'm going to come along and make my own, but I'm going to modernize it instead of it being the steampunk version of uh, a submarine movie and modernize it again by having, you know, nuclear weapons and this global threat. And, uh, you know, uh, so it, it works very well when you see it as that. Mm. It, it, it's like his way to get his stamp on a thing that is trendy and uh, that he knows will get butts in seats, quite frankly. Oh, and there's another little uh, thing that I noticed that I, I felt like was Erwin Allen's tribute to uh, Hitchcock, the scene where they're running out of the UN building, and he didn't quite get that high, high, high matte painting angle that uh, Hitch got where Cary Grant's running to the uh, uh, running out of there and going to the taxi, and you see the cars pull away. Didn't quite get that, but it's a nice wide shot of all those people mm. leaving the building, which I love. Ends in them just running to the sub and then diving while they're UN police yeah, on deck. On the it's shit. like, yeah, again, just Admiral Nelson does not care about the body count in his wake. Like mm. some of those people may not be able to swim. And, and what just, does he say later? He's like, ah, oh, they can swim. <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just, I he literally I, like, well, the, the UN police, of course, they're able to swim. Yeah. You know, everyone <laughs> right. knows the UN operates underwater. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. International waters, yeah. I, I did yeah. have to keep writing in my notes every time it happened. Dive, dive. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, uh, no, there was the notorious restaurant, uh, Steven Spielberg and Jeffrey Katzenberg started called Dive. 
of course, set up to oh, yeah. look like a submarine. And then every 40 minutes, I think, it'd be like the five minute presentation where all the klaxons would start going off. You're sitting there trying to eat your sandwich. It's like, dive, dive. Yes. It's, it's yes. To make it, they're like shaking the place a little bit. It's, it's quite nuts. <laughs> yeah. In Britain, that sounds like it would be a drinking game. The klaxon goes off and everyone's got to neck their drink. <laughs> dive, dive. <laughs> and here you just have to. Um, Get, eat your submarine about sandwich. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I, I guess all the meals on a submarine should be submarine sandwiches. They really should. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the only way for this to properly work. No, that's why uh, that's why baguettes are invented because they can fit on boats. Yeah. Okay. Very very smart. <laughs> because what you eat needs to be the shape of what you're eating it in, <laughs> and it has to be. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, there, there was a funny moment that uh, I don't know if you guys picked up on where uh, they've encountered that minefield, right? Mm. And Admiral, I, I can't remember if, if it's the, the captain says the Admiral, the Admiral says the captain, like, you need to send out a couple of frogmen. Like, no, 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 the, the depth would kill them. You can't do that here. Cut to the mini sub. They're, they're preparing the mini sub. And what do they do? They're putting guys in wetsuits in the mini sub. So it's mm. not a pressurized sub. <laughs> and it's going to fill up with water anyway. So like, okay, no, they won't survive out there. Just put them in a steel tube, but they're still exposed. <laughs> you know, that made no sense. And also, I think they played up the drama a little bit because uh, Captain Crane gets on the horn and he says, I need two volunteers. You don't do that. It you seems don't, like... like for every mission he asked to volunteer, it's like, yeah. but then next minute he's like, well, this is a government sub. You got to follow orders. Yeah. <laughs> Make up like, your mind. <laughs> you're the captain. You pick the people to do the job. You pick the people who are going to be the best at what they do. You don't leave it up to volunteers, especially when it's the kid. Cause you know, the well, especially the kid barely volunteered anyway. The other <laughs> yeah, guy's right, like, oh, right. you're doing it. <laughs> he was <laughs> pressured. <laughs> he was pressured. Yeah. He was pressured before he even got in the submarine. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> oh, we're, cool. we're talking about wonky things along those lines. We also, I'm pretty sure you cannot smoke cigars on a sub. <laughs> you can when you're out for Nelson. They, yeah, they need to address. They need to address his addiction. Really? Yeah. I also serious. liked. Um, they were flying like blind without radar or sonar, but they didn't put anyone to sit by the window and look out. It's just <laughs> luck that Alvarez and the secretary were there. <laughs> yep maybe they were on observation duty you know watch duty yeah, yeah, who's watch. on observation duty the civilian and the secretary <laughs> <laughs> the unhinged civilian um yeah the civilian who wants Ooh. us all to die <laughs> <laughs> no there's nothing out there it's cool <laughs> oh my gosh uh luke what was your favorite submarine movie then well, I, I, I feel like the correct the answer you're meant to give is das boot but i've never seen it Ooh, oh, that is probably is Red October actually for me. You know, the Seanery factor helps, obviously. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, but no, my favorite submarine movie is Balance of Terror from Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah, sure, I'll go with that. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna go with Crimson Tide just because that hit me in the right spot at the, at the right age when it came out. You know, mm. fun opening night experience and. And a year or two later, down Periscope, right? So, <laughs> I, was a, I don't know. It's a terrible movie, but I enjoy watching it. Let's put it that way. <laughs> sure. So, so you got to have your guilty pleasures out there. Yeah, um, totally it's fair, 2023. Yeah. We don't have guilty pleasures anymore. We just like what we like. Yeah. Yes, exactly. exactly. So, 
so I guess we, we, we like this one. We don't love this one. Is But there's so much here that's just like entertaining, you know, like. I, I like, was really pleasantly surprised by this film because I had no idea what I was getting in for. And it was what I was expecting. I wasn't in the mood for. I wasn't in the mood for here's a giant squid. Here's a mermaid island. Here's whatever. But then when it turned out to be like a little bit more about something than that and a bit more of a character driven thing with a design. So, OK, this is actually good. The, the first, say, like more than 20 minutes of this movie, it leaves you to think, OK, this is just a hangout on a submarine movie. Yeah. <laughs> because there's just a lot of exposition. There's a lot of just pointing at things like mm. uh, here's the engines and here's this room and here's the guy who, you know, drugs sharks in our onboard <laughs> pool. Like it, it, there's a lot of that. And it, it, that's why I say this is not a great movie. Like in summary, this is one of those movies that is definitely better than it could have been. Not as good as it should have been. Like a it, tight it, edit that cut about 30 minutes off and made it yeah. way more about the tension could have made this yeah. a really great film. Yeah, for real. Yeah. Um, and, and the sub is cool. Like, I, I love mm. the set design. I love those uh, flashing yellow lights that we see on like every other Urban Allen show ever made and a lot of other TV shows and movies. Um, stuff like that looks great. Set design is fantastic. You can tell why he kept all that stuff. Um, you get Floyd the Barber as a congressman, so why wouldn't you want that? <laughs> um, so, the, yeah, the, there's a lot of stuff here that that definitely works, but I, I think you you nailed it. Like, they needed, to, they needed to either tighten up that edit, trim off a lot of that stuff, or it needed a little script polish so that you're weaving that stuff into the story because what, once it picks up, there's all kinds of attention. You're just going from like action scene to action scene, high tension to high tension moments all I'm over. I'm suddenly curious how many writers this film had. Yeah, I, so it's I'm got three say... writing credits. Oh, really? Okay, so I wonder. Oh, okay. Two of which are Owen Allen. Okay. <laughs> okay. <Two of> which. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Yeah, Owen Allen and Charles Bennett. But I wonder if there was a bit of like. Someone wanted to make a wacky adventure and someone wanted to make a tense submarine movie. Yeah. And they never right. quite found the balance between those two. Right. Could very well be. Yeah. I guess my, my last thought for this one is basically, is Water Pigeon the king of the sci-fi explanation? I'm just thinking between this and a <laughs> Forbidden Planet. I mean, he could just drone on for it's, five I'll tell you what it is. It's that there's... Stuff there's a little condescension to his scientific explanations. <laughs> and that makes it feel like, yeah, sure, he's giving me a lecture, but he's giving me a lecture because he thinks I'm an idiot. <laughs> and and, and I works. swear to you, I swear to you, he says sabotage <laughs> in this movie. When they're in sickbay and they're trying to figure out uh, who sabotaged the, uh, I, I think it's, yeah, when they're trying to figure out who sabotaged the, uh, the generator, mm. I swear to you, he says sabotage. Go back and check that out. Yeah. Oh, it's that only just Shatner got it. Only just occurred to me. So that sabotage, and then the guy kills himself. Yeah. We later find out that she's trying to sabotage. Yeah. Is the idea there that she did it and killed him? I think so. Oh, yeah. 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 That hasn't <laughs> yeah. me immediately, but uh, yeah. That's what yeah. I thought. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Pretty dark. Mm. Pretty she's dark. She's cold stuff. blooded. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, and I think the other kind of really heavy thing here that makes this better than what it could have been michael and sarah i mean 
he he's great first of all in this he he's absolutely fantastic in it and my hat is off to uh you know a general audience popular 1961 sci-fi movie that goes there and has a character who is this like religious fanatic mm. and now they don't go to the extent of saying like you know he's not a terrorist motivated by by a particular religious dogma or whatever but his obsession with uh the idea that whatever happens is god's will like that is dark and scary and it is really heavy for a movie like this so i'm very impressed that they they kind of teased that idea they introduced it and then they really gave it payoff mm. uh toward the end but you yeah. know for a film in 1961 where probably a lot of the oh. audience were like full-on yeah. believers Oh yeah. To say like, totally. hey, religion can lead to fatalism. Be careful with that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that is a that is a big swing. And, and and interesting to see even along the way, before you get to those final dramatic moments with him, you know, basically uh holding Nelson hostage, even before that, you get these moments of pushback with the other crew saying mm. uh, basically like, hey, hey, knock it off. You know, we're <laughs> this isn't the place where you're preaching and we're not here to just uh, accept that that's God's will. No, we're we're here to do a job, and we're here to make things better. Right? Mm. There, there's a lot of that going on, which um, uh, I was surprised and impressed by. Well, and then again, we get that great scene with the squid attack, where he does save mm. Captain. Yeah, I, I always say Lee. I can't remember his surname. Was it Grace? Uh, Lee Crane. Yeah, Crane. Crane. Yeah, and mm. it's like, yeah, like he's not quite one dimensional. Yeah, like he's not going to sit there and watch a person yeah. die. Right. But he does believe that this, whatever it is, is some sort of apocalypse. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, if, if they were, if it, a lazier writer would have had him just like sit there and watch the squid attack him and it would have been like doubled down on that. But like, no, he is a bit more layered yeah. and human than that. Yep. Yep. Yeah, the only flaw with him was not giving him a four letter name that starts with a K. So then we could have a nice set of, you know, <laughs> Kane, Kang, Kang. And, um, so, yeah. and Alvarez. <laughs> yeah <laughs> doesn't doesn't quite ring <laughs> properly yeah, yeah. <laughs> any final thoughts you all want to throw out on this particular one um the problem is if anyone's <laughs> listening to this podcast and they're like i want to say like oh you should watch this film it's surprising you'll be surprised we've just told you everything so you're not going to be surprised now yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, you kind of yeah. were supposed to watch the film first, maybe. I yeah. don't know. I, I I guess occasionally I'll listen to a, a movie podcast that I'm not going to watch. For example, uh, the recent Disney remake of Pinocchio. I'm like, I'll listen to people rant about it for two hours, but I'm definitely not going to watch it. Yeah, I might watch the Del Toro <laughs> one. I'm not going to watch that one. <laughs> no, I guess yeah. my thinking is if you're someone who like did watch this film 10, 20 years ago, whatever, on a VHS... It might be more worth revisiting than you remember. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. And, and because it, it is visually very nice. I, mm. I think most of the actors are really good in it. Um, I, I think the standouts are Michael and Sarah and um, Walter Pigeon. Uh, some of those visuals really hold up today. The problem is it, it just it feels like it takes a while to really get there to where they really find the drama in the piece. And once they do, it's great. 
but there was a lot of times early on that I felt like, all right, is this actually leading anywhere? Are we, are we going to get somewhere? <laughs> and a lot of that scientific debate, a lot of the exposition feels so kind of dumbed down. But what isn't dumbed down is when you get to those final moments, the, those final dramatic moments about like, who will be in charge? Is this going to happen or not? Mm. Is Michael and Sarah actually going to blow up <laughs> the uh, the front control room here with the Admiral in it because he is so driven by his uh, religious beliefs? Like th those are great moments. Um, so if you want to see those actors and you want to see those nice set pieces, absolutely go watch it. With the caveat that taken as a whole, it's still not a great movie. It's a very good movie of its time for what it was trying to do. Yeah. I guess it's kind of a prototype. Maybe that's where this is the beginning of 60s science fiction, because yeah. even Forbidden Planet's like fantastic and weird, even if it's a little smarter. But this is the first one that's really like, okay, there's these, we're, we're going to make, we're going to exaggerate these scientific concepts, but we're going to use yeah. like proper ones and not just like there's a flying disc in the sky shooting lasers. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> but, but Well, and you know, Forbidden Planet is a movie with not a lot of action. So you do have to have the patience for it to really pay attention to what's going on dramatically. Uh, you know, the, no slight against Irwin Allen, that he's the guy who saw that and goes, wow, you can do big budget, popular science fiction. I'm going to take that, but I'm also going to ramp up the action. Mm. <laughs> you know, I, I'm going to make sure that I've got a monster of a few in there. I'm going to make sure that I've got some uh, some people coming to blows here and there and uh, and just put my spin on that style. Yeah. So it might not even be so much that the two writers were trying to make a different movie as in the formula had not yet been set. Well, they just said that. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. No one had really, no one knew how to do like a properly dramatic sci-fi because sci-fis are cheesy. I mean. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess we will close up the shop and, and send this one into dry dock then. So, uh, <laughs> uh, John, if you want to, do you want to plug your casts? Yeah, yeah, you got it. The best place to find us is going to be podcast.roddenberry.com. And over there, I'm I'm a combination of uh, producer and host on a number of shows, uh, Mission Log, Mission Log Live. Then you've got the Orville and Prodigy and Sci-Fi 5 and the Trek Files. And just, you know, podcast.roddenberry.com. Go check it out. There's a little something there for everyone. Matt, I didn't think to ask you, actually. This is a 1961 production. Any Twilight Zone? Alan? Oh, gee, um, let's see. Ansara was not in, was he? You put me on the spot there. I, I'm, <laughs> I figured you'd know this. <laughs> I only know who showed up to the point I've been watching it. Because, uh, yeah, I see. yeah. Because with my Twilight Zone podcast, one of the reasons I did is because I was not like a 100% expert on it. So, you know, I would encounter things newly here and there. But uh, you're asking, I'm like, someone must. To be yeah, it feels inevitable, so. right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, yeah, I can't, I can't really pull that off the the flip of a switch, unfortunately. Yeah, I don't <laughs> well, think Joan Fontaine did. I don't think Peter Lorre did. Did, did Barbara Eden? I'm going to go find out. Yeah, she yeah. might have. Uh, yeah. uh, look here, we'll, we'll be we'll be um, doing that while you do. Yeah, our thing, I guess. But if you want to find more <laughs> of our podcast, you can find this one on Twitter at MLSFS Pod. We're also on YouTube, Facebook, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Just search Matt and Luke Sci-Fi Sanctuary. If you want to help support the podcast, keep it online. You can go to patreon.com slash podcastio podcastius. And yeah, there you'll find links to the other podcasts we make, like the above mentioned uh, Twilight Zone podcast that Matt does, Time Enough podcast, 
There's also some gaming stuff. There's that's got like a bunch of little mini series going on now about the prisoner and occult Disney. You'll find links to all of that. Patreon.com slash podcastio podcastius. And for just a dollar a month, you can hear stuff as soon as we're done editing it. I, I thought uh, I was going to get a hit with Barbara Eden because like half of the cast of I Dream of Jeannie showed up on the Twilight Zone, but I don't think she did. Yeah, no, <laughs> the, the winner the winner is Robert Sterling, Captain Lee Crane, was in ah. a season four episode of Twilight Zone called Printer's Devil. A man sells his soul to the devil to save his failing newspaper and gets <laughs> more than he bargained for. Uh, okay. I'll see when that. I get to the... No, I was just when you said the name, I was hoping it's going to be like the Twilight Zone version of the Mangler, which is the uh, the it's like a laundry press machine that kills people. You have to like go into the room with the Mangler and get interested in the Mangler and kind of start to stick your head in the Mangler. Wow, that that's, that's asking a lot. Starring <laughs> Robert Englund. Wow, wow. <laughs> it would make a good Twilight Zone to have just the crew of a submarine find out the world ended while they were underwater. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Agreed. I mean, it's, I'm it's sure adjacent. one. Of, I'm sure one a bit like that exists. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in, the, in my version for the Twilight Zone, I'm assuming there's no chance of like saving it. They're just like they come back up and everything's gone. But yeah, right. you just uh, well, there is a there's this is the Quiet Earth. There's a, there's the uh, movie where the space station folks are um, floating around while the while the world goes to nuclear war. So uh, okay, <laughs> yeah, there you go. I, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it has been done. Hmm. Okay. Good try, though. Good, good try, Luke. <laughs> right, I'll, I'll, I'll pitch. I'll pitch a different script. Don't worry. <laughs> Back to the drawing board. You're right, no, but but this one's underwater. Come on. Okay. What, what about this? It's totally one, right? different. Right. There's a guy. Um, he doesn't know he's a robot. Has that been done? <laughs> uh, right, dive, uh, dive. I was about to do exactly that. Damn it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> beat you to it okay i'll i'll cut there sorry I'm, I'm... oh i've also got to stop recording <laughs> oh yeah um i'm trying to look at why the mangler eats you because i haven't seen it since 1995 <laughs> well trying to avoid being i'm, I'm still not genuinely man. convinced the mangler is a real film i feel like it's something you make up and bring up <laughs> it's directed by toe pooper <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
Wow. <laughs> it's just based on a Stephen King story. Um, Mark wow. tries to convince Hunton that the machine may be possessed, especially after seeing the possessed ice box. And the only way to stop the death is to exercise the machine to dispel whatever demon is. Uh, so it's, a, it's an ice box, excuse me. But it's in a laundry service. Okay. <laughs> wow. The, the layers, the many layers. <laughs> like I'm reading the plot and it makes zero sense whatsoever. So... <laughs> Oh this must God. this movie must be fantastic. I, actually, I remember it not being fantastic in 1995, but <laughs> I, I could understand how the Stephen King book got written because he just pumped out a lot. But I can't sure. understand how it got picked up to be made into a film. All of them were. This, you know, <laughs> this this must have come from the cocaine phase. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, real quick before you go, uh, I, I 